Hi, this is James Rudd with the Heart Podcast for this week. Uh, my guest is Dr. Khalid Barakat from Barts Hospital in London. And Khalid is an advocate of simulation-based education. And we have a good discussion about a recent Education in Heart paper that he's just published in Heart, which will be free for two weeks after the release of this podcast. We talk about England's uh, failure at penalties in uh, knockout competitions and why that might be. And we also address more serious or perhaps less serious topics such as cardiology training for things like uh, pacemaker insertion, pericardiocentesis, angiography, and how simulators can really help people to become trained uh, more safely, uh, faster, and more effectively. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to leave us a review and tell your friends all about it. See you next time. So perhaps first of all, Khalid, could you introduce yourself for the heart audience and uh, tell us where you work and what you do? So I'm Khalid Barakat. I'm a consultant cardiologist, interventional, um, but I've also got a big interest uh, in cardiac simulation. So for half of my career, or for seven or eight years of it, I was a consultant cardiologist down at Wexham, where I set up an interventional service. But then after that, got interested in simulation, um, went away and did a PG certain medical simulation and developed that and have come back to Barks to set up a, a cardiovascular simulation department, um, which now keys in to our network of simulation sites. So we've got uh, Barts Heart Centre is part of um, the Barts Trust, which includes the Royal London, uh, Whips Cross and Newham. Those other three hospitals have had a general simulation centre for a number of years which is overseen by a fantastic education academy, which supports it. And the Barts Heart Centre hasn't yet quite developed one until two years ago when I, when I started. And in that time, with the support of the other centres um, and the education academy, we've now um, got quite an infrastructure locally, actually. They've spent over one and a half million pounds in buying us kit. Um, we've got myself there. I've got a band 8A nurse who works with me, who's a lead for simulation on the site. We now have a total of uh, seven simulation fellows working on that site specifically. Overall, there are 28 throughout the network. Um, we've got um, support staff and uh, technical support staff as well. So we're very privileged to be where we are. Absolutely. And perhaps we can just step back for a second. And could you explain to the audience what you mean by simulation-based education? I think we all have a rough idea, but is there a yeah. definition or a, a kind of... Uh, a mm. way that you can encapsulate what it involves. So there's two parts of that um, definition, of course. There's simulation, then there's the education bit. Um, I think the first thing to say is that when people think about simulation, the immediate thing that comes to mind is something like the Star Trek uh, holodeck or, you know, a bells and whistles, very expensive digital simulator. And that's really not something um, that we should initially think about. So, Simulation, the first thing to say is a technique. It's not a technology. It's just another educational technique. Um, and the simulation part of it is mainly replacing or amplifying a real life experience, whatever that might be. The education bit comes from the fact that whatever you're replicating um, has got to also have an interactive uh, element to it. In other words, you've got to get feedback. So to explain, you know, I can download um, a Boeing 747 digital simulator onto my Mac 
I can fly it as much as I like and keep crashing it. And of course, I won't improve unless there's an interactive element to it. So that's what simulation-based education is. In cardiology, we're talking about procedures like coronary angiography, temporary pacing. Pericardiosynthesis. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. yeah. Those kind of procedures uh, on an individual level. That's right. So we can break down what we do in simulation into two broad categories. So there's the task-based simulation. So those are all those procedural type things that we're talking about. And then there's the team-based training or the interactive or what people are now more fashionably calling human factors element of it, either non-technical skill side of it. Um, the task training element, I mean, both of these, um, often the waters are muddied. So if you talk to someone who's not au fait with simulation, they say, oh, well, the task trainers for particular procedures aren't great. And what they tend to tend to mean is that you can't replicate the entire procedure. It's not very realistic. And in the paper that I wrote, I think one of the things I try to emphasize is one of the key things that you need to do when you're teaching anyone, regardless of whether it's through simulation, of course, or any other technique, is to identify what the individual learner in front of you needs, what's their learning need, and then map it to the curriculum. So to take the example of coronary angiography, the traditional apprenticeship model is you turn up to the cath lab where you've never worked before. Um, you're suddenly a registrar and you're swamped. You're in an environment you don't understand. You're with a group of people who don't, who see you as an outsider. Um, you don't really know how to scrub. You don't know where the drapes are. You know, you're, you're just set up for a fall. And then you're exposed to a procedure which has a number of elements to it, which include draping the patient, which includes prepping the trolley, which includes getting access into the artery, moving the catheters up, getting the views, injecting, and so on. And and that really is quite an overwhelming um, environment to be in. Now, people who are, who were my best teachers in the cath lab did something very important, and that, something that I took away from that, and that was that they broke down everything I did in the lab, and they just said, right, you're new, your job this week is going to be to learn to scrub. The sister in the cath lab is going to teach you scrub. The sister in the cath lab is going to teach you how to set up a trolley. So each time that you've achieved those targets, you move on to the next. And then when you started doing coronary angiography, and this is the way I always thought it, was today the focus is going to be on arterial access. That's all we're going to do. And once you're in the artery, we'll switch places. I'll do the rest of the procedure. You can watch and assist. And so you build it up in this manner to stop them getting overwhelmed. The advantage of simulation-based education is that we can identify all of those individual needs in a particular training and say, right, your focus is arterial access. So we've got a particular task trainer that's brilliant for trying to teach you those dex those skills, the, the bits of dexterity you need to get into the artery. It's no good for anything else, but that's all our focus is. And, there, and then you can get the next task trainer and so on. And if you do this in a cyclical manner and match it to what they're doing in the real cath lab environment, it can make for some very strong reinforced learning. The cynics would say, actually, all simulation-based learning or education is doing is giving you very, very concentrated one-on-one -on -one training with an expert, which, of course, the old apprenticeship model, when it really did work, used to do that. And I think there is an element of truth to that. But I think it's much more powerful than that, because if you do it properly, you can help them move in a linear progressive fashion through whichever technique they're learning so by the end of it they've got mastery of each component of whatever task they're learning so that by the end of it they're fully competent in whatever they're doing rather than you know we've seen it before where someone's sort of trained in angiography and then they come across something they're not quite familiar with and that's where it tells where the gaps are so that, that, that's sort of an example of how you can use it.
No, I mean, that really makes sense. And that's exactly the way that I learned. You know, I was certainly the the acting scrub nurse for a long time before I was allowed to uh, get yeah. my hands on the patient, as it were. Um, mm-hmm. And in terms of the evidence, I mean, you, you, you nicely outline the evidence in your education in heart paper, uh, comparing it to traditional uh, methods of learning. And of course, you say that there isn't much evidence that traditional methods of learning work either. So it's a, it's a tricky situation. But you do then talk about tricky. things like um, the 20,000 or sorry, the 10,000 hours of uh, mm. training mm. required. I mean, do you, do you think that really applies in cardiology to reach the master level? Um, yeah. What's your thoughts really, on that? That's a really good question. And I think um, with the evidence base, I think one of the things, you know, people like us who've spent our lives in cardiology where we've, you know, been exposed to randomized controlled t- trials with very finite focused endpoints. Unfortunately, education and simulation don't necessarily lend themselves to that. But intuitively, you know, if you just think about practical procedures if you if you teach a child how to tie their shoelaces something very simple and banal like that what do we do we teach them we show them and then we make them repetitively practice that particular task because we know it works and it's the same as football I mean if you take the example in the 90s or even early 2000s you know if England was in a penalty shootout we were going to lose well we weren't <laughs> going to win that and and it, it came to light that we weren't practicing penalties the Germans were and you've looked at our records against the Germans, you know, surprise, surprise, theirs was better. It's astonishing, anyway, they, isn't it? That nobody was yeah. nobody thought that it might be good to spend 10 minutes at the end of every session practicing penalties. But No, that's but right. And then taking the Berlin um, uh, Philharmonic Orchestra, so they're, they're amongst the best musicians in the world. And, you know, that is a very learned, practical type skill. Um, and that's where that Ericsson papers come from. And the problem with the Ericsson study is the extrapolation is that actually you can create a world-class musician out of anyone and you know you're you're um you're made rather than born and this is all of that you know uh, environment versus genetic type question and i think the answer probably lies somewhere between the two but if we're talking about people becoming proficient and competent in something i think repetitive practice there is a lot of truth in that so if you play a musical instrument uh, focusing on those things that are your weakness which is what the ericsson paper showed uh, will make you that much better. Um, so Com- compared the, to for, just practicing the things that you already can do quite well, yeah. Exactly. So if you look at, um, I mean, I'm not a musician, but if you look at uh, traditional uh, practice or rehearsal with musicians, my wife is. There's a very structured format that most musicians will do. So if you play the tenor horn, there'll be a set of practices that you do, and it'll be the same every time. So you may not come to the point uh, that the thing that you struggle with towards the end of the practice, so you may not come across it at all. And you can see the value of trying to hone your skills on the things that you're most afraid of, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and whether it applies to medicine is difficult to say, except if we again step back in a specialty like cardiology, as you well know, in the in the lab, most things, you know, progress 98% of the time without any difficulty at all. But that 2% of the time when we get a time critical emergency, we know how disastrous and how, you know, uh, ineffective we can all look because no one's quite sure what to do. Undoubtedly, if we practice and rehearse those scenarios that come up infrequently but require a time critical response, we will be we will do better. And as an example of that, there was a study back in about 2007, 2008. There was some small Midwest hospital in America where they did about 200 
coronary artery bypass grafts a year. So a small volume, low volume center. And the problem was they'd have about two restenotomies a year. And of course, the restenotomies would occur in the ITU. Now, the problem was that they could not get the time from decision to restenotomy down uh, from 32 minutes. They just couldn't get it down, whatever they did. So every time they had one, they'd have an SI saying this was too long. They'd write an SI report and then there'd be a whole a bunch of things they'd written down on a bit of paper that was disseminated around the hospital down this is what we need to do and this is what people need to and of course nothing changed and an SI just for those listening is a significant incident I'm assuming yeah yeah Yeah. so the thing that changed actually was they decided to simulate the whole thing because someone realized the problem here was you'd have a decision to go to restenotomy on an ITU and the only person who knew anything about restenotomies or stenotomies was the surgeon making that call he was surrounded or she was surrounded by ITU nurses who were experts in their field, but not in surgical um, assistance. So they started to do simulation on the, on the unit and discovered that the problems really lay in the fact that the surgeon was having to tell each person individually what he or she wanted them to do. What was it they wanted them to get? Where could they get it from? What did it look like? So from that came out the idea, well, actually, what we need is a stenotomy trolley labeled one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, or whatever number of packs. So the, the word stenotomy comes up, the trolley's wheeled round by an assigned person, that same assigned person ha- opens up pack one, which is the drapes and so on. And by doing that, they got the time from re-stenotomy down from 32 odd minutes to about seven or eight minutes. And they found that that effect would last for about two or three months and then have to repeat it. So regular rehearsal in a simulated, simulated uh, in situ um, scenario on on the ITU help them get those figures down consistently. So there is some sort of evidence for that. Yeah, I'm sure, and we see that every day, don't we, in the hospitals with the dedicated resuscitation trolley, uh, all appropriately yeah. labelled, very easy to open and access. And uh, I'm mm-hmm. sure that arose from a, a similar kind of uh, study. Um, yeah. In terms of the the UK and international uh, positions, Khalid, in in how training uh, sort of SBE simulation based education mm. is. is uh, baked into the trainee curriculum. Uh, does it vary across the world? Are, are some countries more advanced than others? Yeah, people. there are people doing it uh, more than we are, but I, I'm not entirely convinced that anyone has actually mapped it to a curriculum properly. In other words, the problem with a, a, technolo- a technique like this is that because it's technologically driven or can be in quarters, people think it's the thing to do, you know? And we have very, very effective teaching and training tools out there already and and simulation of course is very resource intense and therefore very expensive so it should really be used and utilized for those things where it's best suited or perhaps it's the only way of training or teaching someone so again in the paper i highlight our curriculum with regards to pericardiosynthesis and you know if you look at that there are three layers of learning objectives for our trainees going through their training the level one is um just the knowledge base, understanding why we do pericardiosynthesis and how we do it. Level two is the ability to demonstrate that you can do it. And then level three is to be able to do it in an interactive manner, i.e. you do this, uh, the pericardiosynthesis and at the same time you can empathize with the patient. Um, so the way we've addressed that is say, well, level one is quite straightforward. You know, we address that very well already with our education. So they can go away and learn about it themselves or we can give them seminars or lectures and so on, traditional teaching. Level two to understand the practicalities of doing well we can do that with a task trainer so we've got a model which actually if you palpate it and you shut your eyes you can feel the ribs and you can feel the zipper sternum it's quite realistic 
for a subsurface approach. Um, and you can ultrasound it. And the ultrasound image is very good. The heart, of course, is still on that uh, particular task trainer. But we can teach them the steps of um, getting the image, working out the angle of approach using that image. So we do something called echo-facilitated ECG-guided pericardiocentesis. So you use the image to define the trajectory. Um, you use the image to define the depth. So it's not a blind procedure. When you put the probe down, you can then take your needle and approach having utilizing what you've just learned from the imaging that you've just done. And you know how far you need to go because of the imaging you've just done. So that's the level two bit. And then the level three bit, we take the same task trainer and couple that to usually one of our fellows who ends up being the head of that task trainer. And we put drapes on. We have simulated monitors going bing in the corner with very low blood pressures, a very sweaty uh, patient, if you like, talking to um, the person who's doing the pericardiocentesis. So it completely makes it, it makes it much more immersive. Um, so that, that's how we address it. But the point there is, if you go through the curriculum, you will find lots of things that can be taught by traditional methodology. And there are a few things that we need to pick out that are best suited for simulation. And of course, it's safer for, for patients, isn't it? In uh, You were talking about it the is. cath lab earlier on as well. And uh, people practicing the first uh, case on a, on a live patient may not be the way to go anymore. And, and actually taking that point, and that's really important, of course, in a cath lab environment, the primary goal of the cath lab, you know, we don't have the luxury of it um, being there just for training. It, you know, the primary purpose, of course, is service. And service will dictate what comes through the cath lab. So what's coming through may not necessarily be um, quite appropriate for the trainee that's in the lab at that time, which can make it quite fragmented in terms of their learning. Where, of course, with simulation, going back to that, breaking down their their needs into very, very small chunks, we are completely in control of what they're learning at any particular time. Um, so, Absolutely. Can I just finish off by asking a little bit about the, the training of teams uh, you mentioned yeah. right at the beginning? I've seen a few videos online, which I must say, as somebody who does coronary angiography, seem very alarming to me with simulated patients and, and actors playing very sick people. And then, as you say, a whole team of people responding to what's happening in front mm. of them. Is this is this commonly used now in the UK or is this are these found only in a few dedicated centers? And, and where do you see the value of this kind of training? I think the last bit is really important. I think I think it's really, really valuable. I think really valuable um, as an overview. Um, I don't like talking much about the the airline industry, but actually there's a lot about non-technical skills we can learn from them because they, they lead the field really in this. So these kinds of simulations currently are, are occurring very, very in very few centers. And partly it's because to run them effectively, to get that immersive type uh, environment has been quite difficult. So traditionally, um, well, in the last two years, a lot of people have been running these scenarios using placards or saying, you know, having a dummy and saying, this is what's happening at the moment and trying to, trying to sort of overlay what exactly is going on. And it's sort of, sort of, and not sort of, useful. I think it's, it's thoughtful in, in some levels of human factors training, but really not quite immersive enough. So we're lucky enough to have just got hold of something called Simman Vascular. So we know we've had these Simmen, which are these mannequins that you can program, they can talk to you, they can breathe. You can have program into them all kinds of breath sounds uh, from crackles to wheezes to silent chests. You can program in um, all kinds of murmurs. 
Um, they can sweat, they can vomit, they can fit, they can cry. So these are very common. They're produced by Leodal and have been for the last 20, 30 years. And people doing trauma, people doing general medicine, any, they, they use these kind of uh, simmen all the time. They're very, very, very good. The problem, the problem for us has been is we don't have something equivalent like that where um, we can then do angiography, for example. But they've now just mated um, a simman vascular to um, a digital simulator for angiography. So we can now do that. So you, these things are mobile. So you can have someone having well, one of these things having a myocardial infarct in their home being retrieved by an ambulance crew will come and talk to it and they can have a VF arrest, they can resuscitate them, they can then bring them in the back of the, the ambulance, they can arrive in the hack room, they can be transferred to the cath lab, they can be intubated. Then we can go on and insert catheters, the real catheters we normally use in a catheter lab. And we've just integrated one of these into one of our cath labs. So as soon as they arrive on the cath lab table and we stick a catheter in, the normal flora screens that we use come live and the images that we get are coming from the sim man. And when we inject the coronary angio that we see is coming from the sim man. We change the table position or the C-arm position and the imaging responds appropriately. The hemodynamic traces that we see in the real cath lab are coming out of the sim man. So it's really upped what we can do. So I think, you know, we are now just beginning to explore using this and, um, one of the other things that's going to fall out of this, I think, and in fact, something we're going to start exploring is the use of these kind of tools to actually investigate SIs, so serious incidents. So rather than have a third party have a look at it, I think what we will start doing is to get the team to rerun what's happened using one of these devices and then do that very important debrief with external people. So that we as a group then can work out what it is went wrong, where and how could we do it better next time. So I think it's going to be a real powerful tool. The problem, of course, at the moment is this technology is there, but actually it's in its infancy. So the capabilities are immense. So we are working very closely with the manufacturers of this device because one of the things that I keep seeing um, with serious incidents in the lab has been cardiac arrests and using autopulse devices. Um, but this device at the moment isn't able to put an autopulse on, but I've been to their headquarters, spoken to the different manufacturers, the different bits of this kit. We're now working on the ability to put an autopulse on. The software people are writing the software so that once that goes on, you've got a cardiac arrest. You, on the screen, you will see the autopulse going up and down and so on. And they've already you know, introduced the intubation software for it. So a lot of what we need has got to be driven by us. Um, yeah, well, I think so it's... Uh... It's a fascinating thing to to hear about in more detail, and uh, you're certainly in in one of the best places I think in the UK to to deliver and lead on this uh, this type of uh, approach to training and also to revalidation. I think you mentioned in the article how important it is for established uh, practitioners to uh, to go through these various scenarios, these you know one in a hundred times uh, issues that that sometimes crop up. That's right, and of course the funding is going to be a problem. We're lucky because we've got a a very good education academy funding us, but I think. What's really going to fund this long term is the fact that things like human factors training, so this multidisciplinary team or team training, is now going to get embedded into healthcare. So there is an important document that, particularly for those who are British audience, should go and Google, which is um, the National uh, Quality Board Concordat on Human Factors. If you just Google that, you'll get a document, and it's signed by all our leading um, bodies, so CQC, Department of Health, Health Education England, 
essentially saying that human factors should be embedded within all healthcare delivery. And the stick will be that unless they, in the next few years, unless you're demonstrating that you're doing that, um, you won't be an approved centre, therefore funding won't follow. So I think that's what's going to drive us doing these kinds of things. Um, and I think the fallout for, you know, the, the great benefit will be for the, the trainees and, you know, the rest of the stuff. So I don't think edu- I don't think training per se is going to drive this because money is difficult, but I think it will be the other way around. The service will drive it and we will get it coming back into training. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me, uh, Khalid. It's, a, it's been brilliant to talk to you and I will include links to your paper in the uh, Heart Podcast show notes so people can go away and uh, read all about it. It'll also be free for two weeks as well uh, after the release of the podcast. Thanks ever so much indeed for your time. Fantastic. Thank you. Great talking to you, James. Thank you.